The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. One of the exercises I often like to do with my students is just start on one side of the room. We can't do it today. Start on one side of the room and just have every student give one sentence, walk through the story of David and Goliath. So we begin with, I might get them started. There was a giant in the land. And then the next person would say his name was Goliath. And we would see how we could do getting through this story. And one second, I'm all mixed up here. And one of the things that inevitably happens, always, I've never had it not work out this way, is that the story that people tell is made up of characters and activities and no words. And one of the things that we find as we go through the Bible's stories, true stories, whether in Genesis through Kings, or Daniel through Chronicles, or the Gospels, Acts, or Revelation, is that we will not understand the message of God unless we hear the words that are being spoken from one character to another. And it's very important in this story, because this story is not about a young boy who beats a giant. It's not. If we're able to track the words. So, we're going to look at this story for starters, and I have my handouts here. So as we look at the outline of Samuel, we are presently in this third division, David's honoring of Yahweh and the rise and establishment of an ideal royal figure. And so we're starting today in 1 Samuel 17. I'm not going to be here, I don't anticipate, super long. We noted last time, right at the end of the hour, that there was a problem in Saul, his failure to honor God, and there was something, we're told, in 1 Samuel 16 that set David apart. In chapter 15, he was called someone better than Saul, and then in chapter 16, when David's brothers are contrasted with him, what we read is that Samuel, you think Eliab's the one because on the outside he looks strong, he looks tall, he looks royal, but God doesn't look at the outward appearance, God looks where? At the heart. And now we come to this great Bible story, often portrayed through flannel graph, but not today. (laughs) So what we're looking at here is the Valley of Elah in Israel. We're told at the beginning of the story that there were two armies, and they were stretched out on each side of this valley. We're looking at Azekah, which is the hill where the Philistine outpost was set up, and they sent out their giant, namely Goliath. And Goliath begins to talk and make great boasts, where a description is given that unpacks how big he was, And it's quite awesome. He declares in verse 8, 
Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. The Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11 tells us the result. When Israel hears this, Israel's giant, and all the rest of the army responded in this way. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. I say Israel's giant because Saul, we're told, in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, that Saul was a head taller than everyone else in the land. Israel had their giant, the one that should have been representing God, trusting in his greatness, going out into battle to confront the giant Philistine. But he was afraid, freaking out in his tent. Then the tables turn, and we learn about a little boy. How little? Well, we want to see. How little is he? Well, he comes and he's commissioned by his father, head down to uh, the Valley of Elah, where this battle is raging. Go from Bethlehem to Elah and give your brothers bread and cheese and see how they're doing. And he gets there, and in the distance he hears the cry of Goliath. And instead of being filled with fear, like we're told the response of all the rest of Israel was, including the king, this is what we read. Let me find it. Verse 26, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He sees that the offense is not against a people alone. It's against the one who is over the people. David, by his very words, puts this battle in the context of the fame of God's name. Who, is, who does he think he is? That he would confront the armies of the living God. We hold to not a dead God. He is alive. He is powerful. If he is God, he is alive. And no matter what comes, how big he is, he's living. He's for us. Who does he think he is? So what will be given to the one who actually takes this dude down? And then he learns, so shall it be done to the one who kills him. What? Uh, let me see. Verse 25. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. No taxes, and you get a babe. The, queen's, the, the, the king's daughter. A princess. Girls? Cooties? No! This is motivation! Eliab shows up, and ironically, Eliab, the oldest brother, verse 28 says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. In the previous chapter, this is the one of whom it was said, don't look at his outward appearance, rather, God is looking at David because of his heart. So ironically now, Eliab is the one saying, you've got a perverted heart. This is about pride. This is about you. But it's not. So David shows up with Saul. Saul says to David, verse 33, 
You're not able to go up against the Philistine to fight. You are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. Now listen to how David talks. You are your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught it by the beard and struck him and killed him. This isn't my son, my nine-year-old son Isaac talking. This is a young man who is tested on the field. He knows what it's like to have a wild beast that wants to kill him coming after him. And to take that beast by the beard, throw it to the ground and slit its throat and have the blood splatter everywhere. I've been there, he says. And this Philistine will be no different than the lion or the bear. That's not all that he says, though. Notice, lest we think in the mind of this young warrior, he's all about me. This is about my power and the strength of my hand. No, look at what he says. He doesn't stop talking after he said, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him, verse 35. Verse 36, he says, your servant, that's me, Your servant has struck both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. There it is again. Verse 37. Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This battle, this is so important to recognize that God's grace does not make David's working unnecessary. David is convinced that it's God's grace that made his working possible. He's a warrior. And yet he will act as a warrior for the glory of God. And when all is said and done, when the victory is given, it's God who will get the glory. And this is setting up a story, setting up a contrast, because Saul has a very small view of God. Or else he would be out there battling the Philistine. Now, lest we get the VeggieTales idea... What happens? Little David, Dave, and the giant pickle. Dave comes into Saul's tent, and Saul takes his armor and tries to put it on Dave. And what's the problem? It's too big in VeggieTales, but it's not too big in the Bible. Let's read what happens next. That's not the issue with respect to Saul's armor. So the Lord is the one who delivered me. And Saul says at the end of verse 37, Go and Yahweh be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped the sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. That's the problem. It's not the size. They're untested. That's important to recognize. Again, the text is not trying to make us think he's a wimp or a little guy who has to beat a giant. No, he's a warrior who knows how to kill a lion and a bear and do so in the right way for the glory of God. Then he says, okay, these are untested. I'm going to go the way that I'm used to. 
And what does he do? He goes down to the brook of Elah, and he chooses five smooth stones. We have thousands of these stones that we have found from the time of David. Great battles were raging all over, and the main weapon, long-distance weapon of the ancient world, was a sling stone. We have thousands of them that we found. They're, they're, they're chipped out. I have one in my office, and I just forgot to bring it because I wanted to pass it around in here, so maybe next week I'll try to remember. It's about the size of a tennis ball made out of granite. It's chipped down the size of a tennis ball, and they would put it in the sling and throw it like this, and we know now, because people have made them and used them, we've got pictures of them. I could show pictures. Um, pictures of reliefs on the walls of Assyria when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against Lachish just 240 years later after David. When he came against Lachish, we have pictures of them, of the sling throwers. And so people today, setting up the sling like we see depicted there, have been able to throw sling stones 150 miles an hour, get this, up to a quarter mile with solid, dead accuracy. This is no light weapon. Now he goes down to the stream, he just finds rocks in the stream. He didn't have time to make them how he wanted them, but it does give us an idea what he would have been looking for. He's not a boy. He's a warrior who's dependent on his God. We have to rework our understanding and track the words that are being spoken. I killed a bear. I killed a lion. And Yahweh, who, gave, who delivered me from these, will do it again. Because this guy has defied the armies of the living God. And Saul is freaking out. A head taller, at least, than David. He's talking to him. Okay. God be with you. <laughs> and out David goes, and he picks up the stones, and he lets them fly. But before he lets them fly, he has this little interchange with the giant. So what does Goliath have to say? Goliath begins to talk. Verse 43. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Big problem right there. That word cursed. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. That same word is used in Genesis chapter 12 where God told Abraham, the one who curses you, I will curse. And I think it's a signal. His end is sure. Cursed. He cursed David by his gods and he said, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now listen to David. And it's in this speech right here. It's the longest speech in the chapter. And so that draws our attention to it. The longest speech in the chapter that makes clear this is not a story about David beating a Goliath. Listen to what the story is about. And it's here that we need to look for the message. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied, this day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
When you've taught this story to your kids, have you let them know the story is about God? The role of David is to magnify God. He's being set up in a battle of champions. The Philistines had their champion. He's hostile to the armies of the living God, who's been at work building a kingdom since Genesis. He's standing in a serpent-like role against this royal figure whom Hannah called Messiah. God will strengthen the arm of his Messiah. The one who is faithful to God, God will be faithful to. Those who honor Yahweh, God will exalt. That's the whole message of this book that we've seen already. It happens whether you're barren, you honor God, God will exalt you. It happens whether you're a high priest, you dishonor God, you will be lightly esteemed. You might be King Saul, or you might be a shepherd boy. Those who honor God, God will honor. And in this context, all of those hopes of the royal, male, offspring of Abraham, offspring of the woman who will overcome the God hostility evil, destroy the curse, and establish blessing and peace, David is embodying a picture of the ultimate royal figure who would come. And as we see him, we see a portrait of the Son of God who does great battle in a battle of champions against the evil one and does it so that all the world may know that Yahweh alone is God in Israel. This is a missionary story. And it's beautiful. And it makes David stand in massive contrast to Saul and it heightens the hopes of those who are reading the book knowing that, hear me, who are reading the book after David because the book talks about David and it includes David's death. Well, David doesn't die until 1 Kings chapter 3, but it gets us right up there. So the reader of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, whoever's reading it, knows that David has died and therefore knows also about his struggles with Bathsheba and the whole downfall of his kingdom. And therefore they know that David was not the ideal king fully. He was a very real king, but there's something here that elevates him above everyone else. And what's elevating him in this story is that he is all about God. And the call for us is to take, for the original readers, was not first and foremost to say, I want to be like Dave. It was to take great hope that one day God would raise up the one greater than David, who would embody this God-exaltation, God-dependence, fully and finally, definitively put an end to all evil. And then in that context, I find someone like whom I want to become, fully. So my point is, before we start saying, let's be like Dave, we say, let's be like the son of Dave, to whom David was merely a pointer. Can you see Christ in the text? And I'm suggesting this is exactly how they would have been reading it. In light of the hope that I've already sketched out stands behind the hope for the Messiah that stand, stretches all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When we come to 1 Samuel, there's 
a hunger for the king of kings. There was no king in the land, said the book of Judges. Everyone was doing what was right in their eyes, and that was the problem. They needed the king, and David is being elevated as an, a, a perfect royal picture. Now, that much I am sure of. What I'm about to say I am not sure of, but I'll throw it out there. So I'm walking back here to the board to say where, what is the place called that Jesus died? Where Jesus definitively entered into combat and ultimately gained security, uh, gained, not security, um, Salvation is a good word. Gain salvation over the ultimate enemy. Where did he do it? That's right. Golgotha. And what does it mean? The place of the skull. And this is the only place in, in Jewish literature that it's found. No place outside the Bible ever mentions anything about Golgotha. We, can't find, we haven't found it anywhere else in any Jewish literature, only in the New Testament, only in the Gospels. And it's called, it means, a place of a skull. And it may just be that the rock structure looked like a skull. It may just be that, that the, it's Aramaic, it may just be that the, that the, Romans killed a lot of people there on this mountain. But it has been proposed in light of the fact that there is only one skull, one head, ever associated with Jerusalem in all the Old Testament. A number of decapitations, but only one of them directly associated with Jerusalem. Guess whose it is? What's his name? Okay. And where does he live? Exactly. So that's possible. That David chops off his head, thus kills him, and takes his skull back to Jerusalem. We don't hear about it ever again. But that the, the background to Golgotha may very well be Goliath of Gath. Just notice the, the language here. Sorry, should be broken right there. So it's at least, it has very similar spelling. The consonants are very similar. That may not mean anything, but it's at least intriguing that in the great battle of champions to which this battle pointed, the great son of David went head to head with the great serpent giant and definitively gained victory for everyone. Now, as we move ahead through the rest of 1 Samuel, there is an intentional developing motif. Why does it take so long to let us get David to the throne? I mean, why, if Saul is so bad, why did the narrator take so much time? That's the question. Why didn't he just say, so Saul was a bad guy, and God took his kingdom away, and David was the king. 
Why is it that we have this entire extended entourage of God giving David a good spirit, Saul, God tormenting Saul with a bad spirit, and David running from Saul, and Saul chasing David, and David almost dying numerous times, having the opportunity to murder Saul and not taking it. Part of the reason, I think, is to carry out the theme of the book. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And a desire to focus in, to depict for you and I as we're reading what it really looks like to bring honor to God. So I just have a whole series of examples from this large unit from 1 Samuel 17, 16, 15. 1 Samuel 15, all the way up through the end of 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's a middle unit in the book, and it's actually, structurally, I think that's, that's where the unit break is. Because chapter 14 ends this way. Chapter 14 ends like this. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul... And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself to him. That's the end of the first unit. It it tells us that Saul is being the kind of king that they anticipated. He's not establishing peace. He's a, a king who's continually in battles. And he's drawing in every warrior that he can, breaking up families and entering into war, whereas 2 Samuel chapter 8 ends this way. I think it's an intentional contrast, and it helps frame this middle section that we're about to look at. Here's what we read at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 8. So David put garrisons, I'm in verse 14, David put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. Saul, constantly in battle, never having victory or securing peace. David, enjoying the victory of God wherever he goes. What do we find in between these two big units? Just a quick run through. Here they are. Number one, boldness versus fear of man. What does it mean to honor God? 1 Samuel 17, 11 and 26, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. How about Dave? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? There is a deep-seated confidence in David because he knows his God. Whereas Saul is simply afraid of man. Honoring God means trusting in his bigness and not being afraid of man. Number two, along with boldness versus fear, you've got military success versus failure. Saul had struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. Remember there was the cheerleaders? All these ladies. After the battle with Goliath, Everything's starting to ease out, and this song starts to rise. Go, David. Go, David. Saul killed his thousands. Dave killed his ten thousands. And they're going back and forth, and Saul's getting a complex. And this is a story 
This unit is about showing that Dave, when he sets his mind to something, God just is blessing it. And whenever Saul set his mind to something, it continues to fail. Divine presence versus divine absence. And the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. Two verses later. Now the Spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. And that's the story of the text. A man who's messed up in his mind, who has demons, very literally, working on his soul, and then another one who's enjoying the very favor and presence of God. This is related to that. Frequent oracles versus no word from God. One of the striking elements as you read through this story, and this, this struck me uh, this morning while I was meditating on this again, and it, it actually hit me while I was in the sermon, and it moved me to repent. Because one of the elements that sets David apart is before, before he enters into any battle, over and over and over and over again, it says explicitly, the narrator makes known, he asked the Lord, should I go up against the Philistines or not? And then he waited, and God answered, attack. Should I go up in the, against the Philistines right now? No. Wait. Whereas, whenever you're reading about Saul's narrative, there's never that mention ever. The absence of evidence doesn't always mean the evidence of absence. The absence of evidence doesn't always mean evidence of absence. But the fact that the narrator makes explicit that David was praying before he set out on things, and, that, and then it doesn't mention it for Saul, it seems as though it's part of, the, part of the contrast. And then we read that God is answering David, and then with Saul it says, and when Saul inquired of Yahweh finally, the, the fact that it happens is so striking because it hasn't been mentioned at all up to this point in the book. When Saul inquired of the Lord, God didn't answer him. And then we get a hint how God was talking to David. By dreams, by Urim, by the prophets. We don't know how God is talking to David. How is it coming to him? We have one example where he actually goes to the priests and he, he gets the Urim and the Thummim. Now, most recent studies, these are kind of tricky things to figure them out, but it seems as though they were glowing stones, most likely glowing stones. One would glow... If it was a yes, the other would glow if it was a no. And God hasn't given me any glowing stones. But he gave them to Dave. And that was one of the ways that the leaders of ancient Israel would talk to God before they had all this book and discern specifically what God's will was for them. Now when I've had students come and say, Dr. D, is she the one? I mean, I just want to know. Is she the one? And I, I mean, I'm able to say, I have a word from the Lord for you. And I say things like this. In loving her and in marrying her, can you give God more glory than you would single? If you can't tangibly put that in line, 
how God will be magnified more greatly in your marriage than right now you can be as a single, then God's will for you is to hold off. Because he's already told us, very generally, I mean, there's specifics like go to Bethel and sin. Amos 4.12 is not about Bethel University. That was the Northwestern joke when I was a prof there. So, um, what? Oh, it was. <laughs> From a Bethel grad. This is good. So, the, it's actually not 412, it's like 4244. Okay. Um, so the point, David's praying, Saul's not. And God's answering Dave. Last one. After Saul dies, 2 Samuel 3, 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger Saul's house grew weaker. So what do we hear in that? Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And this morning, where I found myself, and this is where I want, I want you to go first, I found myself seeing how much I've dishonored God by my failure to be dependent on Him, by my prayerlessness. And I found myself praising God that He has sent the one greater than Dave who honored God perfectly, and through his righteousness, God looks at me. Let your heart go there first, before you even assess how can I honor God more. Just give praise that, as Solomon declares, there's no man on earth who isn't a sinner, 1 Kings chapter 8. And yet, into that context, God raised up the son of David, who has overcome the greatest giant that any world has ever seen, and he's done it for us. Praise be to his name. Thanks be to God that when I faced that giant in the past, he showed up and gave me great victory. May that be your testimony that magnifies what God has done. And then may it nurture us, give us great confidence that if he's given us that much in Christ, that we can know he will do it again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us everything else? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have met us. Thank you that your word is living and active. And that's what I pray is happening this morning. A living word that's being active in the hearts of people. May Jesus be made much of. And then in turn not in order to earn your favor, but because you already favor us, may we honor you. Your grace does not make our honoring you unnecessary. It makes it possible. So may Jesus be made much of through the honor that he works in us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. 
For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.